you have joined us in a, a series at the beginning of the year on what does it mean to uh, be a church, what is uh, the vision of treasuring Christ church, and so we have just taken these past several weeks to just hone in on different aspects of our vision, and we continue to invite you into that series for the rest of January, and then uh, starting at the beginning of February, we will dive into the book of Ecclesiastes as we take books of the Bible and just work through them together. But I invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter 5, but we are really going to be all over the place. So uh, today uh, we are uh, going to spend some time on the part of our vision of uh, loving the church. What does it mean to be a church? And specifically, how does Jesus see the church? How does Jesus see the church. So what I want to do is I want to read Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25, 26, and 27. But as I said, we'll be in many places in the scriptures today. I want to read that and then pray and we'll dive into God's word. Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 37. When you're there, say I'm there. Okay. All five of you, let's uh, read the Bible together. Here we go. And I want you to focus here, not on the subject of marriage, but on Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, By the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray. Father, we ask in this moment that no matter how our culture tells us to see the church, no matter how our pain tells us to see the church, no matter how our stories tell us to see the church, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the church as you see the church. Help us now to see your love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. It is a joy to dive into God's Word with you right now. And this isn't part of my manuscript, but it's just something I wanted to say, really, as we were being led wonderfully through song. And it is the reality that I pray you listen with in this moment. And when we're singing, worthy is your name. It's an acknowledgement that the living God of the universe, the one who saw all of our sin, said, I love you so much, I'm sending him to you, my son, my only son. And he says to us right now, I'm with you. In this place, I'm with you. And so as you listen, my plea is that you will listen with the clear, fresh awareness that God is here. Not making it up, not forcing the reality. He is here because his people are gathered here to celebrate his son. So with that mentality, we do long to see the church as Jesus sees the church. Now, this is part of the manuscript, so let's dive in. Sometimes you can see something one way, And you see it as optional or sometimes even hurtful. But then, after you understand it a little bit, you actually begin to see it as necessary and life-giving. Here's what I mean. Exercise. Do I get an amen? Okay? So, when I think about exercise, I used to love playing sports growing up. Still love to play sports. But when you talk to me about, you know, go out and just run for fun... I thought you were crazy. 
And when we talked about post-college, you know, I had this idea that I would work out in college and it would be my massive muscles that wooed my wife. You know, that's just not the way my, my body's built and it's not what happened, okay? Um, nor was it my intellect. I'm not sure what she saw in me. But God in his kindness, we got married 25 years ago in May, by the way. Praise Jesus to that. So now, yes, amen. That's his grace. So but when I think about exercise and you think about working out and you think about running, most of those things don't seem very appealing. They actually seem distasteful. They really seem optional, and the pain that is incurred when you do them is really you would, you know, like to avoid that at all costs. Now, then I began to, as I'm now in my mid-40s, yep, made it that far, when I'm in my mid-40s, you begin to see that uh, your body acts differently than it did when you were in your teens and 20s. It's just how life works. You begin to think about exercise and the longevity of life, and you begin to read some studies that surprise you. A study that says if you walk about 30 minutes a day, it says every 2,000 steps reduces your risk of dementia cardiovascular disease, cancer, and even premature death by 10% every 2,000 steps. Huh. Okay. Put that, you know, back here. <laughs> well, I remember my wife really helped motivate me to walk because she would let go walking and then we just began to walk together. And as we would go and walk together, it just became a wonderful time when as we would walk, we would get to listen to each other. We would talk to each other. And then it was also wonderful because we got to see our neighbors. And you know, one of the greatest ways that you can show the love of Jesus is actually just be happy when you walk. It's pretty revolutionary in our culture. You just smile, like be happy, don't be annoying. You know, it's just like, it's amazing that that is actually pretty compelling these days. And so we would go on walks and it was build up our relationship and it was just great to be in our neighborhood. And then I read stats like this and it's like, okay, there's some further benefits. I read other things that talk about how you know, when you work out in some way, shape, or form with like some weights or some resistance, it tells you that you are less injury prone, it increases bone density, you burn more calories, it elevates your metabolism, it reduces blood pressure, it lowers cholesterol, it improves circulation, and I'm like, wow, okay. And then it says all these things improve your mood, remarkably affect your anxiety and depression, and so all of a sudden, this one thing that was like, avoid it like the plague, I now see it through new lenses. I see it as, although undesirable and painful, something that actually has significant benefit to my life and to my health. Now, some of you, you have physical struggles, and I know that you can't necessarily do all of these things, and I want you to trust that God will supply all that you need. He is with you. And you just do what you can do. But my point here is what was once hurtful, painful, inconvenient, and distasteful, seemingly less important, began to be revealed as something now helpful and in many ways necessary in my life. Now, here's what else I see. I read the Bible and it says, physical training is of what? Some value, but godliness is of value in every way, it says. Because it holds a promise, not just for this life, but for the life to come. So, I think we must ask ourselves, we must begin to think, is there something spiritual that I see as distasteful, inconvenient, sometimes hurtful, but that actually is meant to be seen as necessary, vital, life-giving, and essential? I think it's the church. People have many negative views of the church, and you might be one of those people. In our American individualism, we view our spirituality as ours, not very communal. We view spirituality as the kind of the golden corral of life. You know, I will pick and choose what I want when I want it. Please don't tell me what to do. You're infringing upon my rights. Anything else is legalism. And so therefore we think the church is optional or maybe one tool in the tool belt that I can dip into when I might feel a little lonely or I need a pick-me-up. 
We don't see it as vital to the Christian walk. How do you view the church? How do you view the church? Sadly, some people view the church as more hurtful than helpful. Some see it as abusive, controlling, mean-spirited, narrow-minded. And I just pray, oh Lord, may it never be. But why do people struggle with the church? Because they've been hurt by others? They see hypocrites in the church, those who say one thing, live one way in one space, and live a totally different way in another space? Some churches are very political, and that can be very distasteful. Some churches have been light on abuse. Some churches have been controlling and manipulative, been more rule-oriented on things that are not even in Scripture. And I just want you to know, we should grieve over these distortions. They're real things, and they've created real hurt. They're not to be taken lightly, but they are that. They are distortions of what God has created. Distortions of God's plan and his beauty. We just want to say in this church, we are not afraid of that kind of baggage. We invite you in. We don't ask you to stuff it. We want to be a family that's able to say, I have been hurt in this way. It is difficult. But we want to be in this church a picture that is different. But I want to say something to you. Many of us have been hiding behind our hurt. We've been hiding in our suffering. And I can just tell you personally, I know the temptation. We have been hurt by people and so we run. And that makes sense, right? It makes sense. And for some, they have talked about, I need to deconstruct my faith. Not really because of new information that has come into our world like, wow. No, it's because of new hurt. People have been hurt. So they feel like they've got to trust nothing else but themselves and their fresh new discovery. But there's a huge problem with this approach. Many try to trust human reason as God. That I can think my way through this. I can figure this out. And that's a total product of the Enlightenment, which you have to understand is a philosophical worldview from the 1600s forward in Europe. And we have been doused by it, bathed in it, and we are told our reason is king. But for most of world history, faith has had to be a part of life. And the more you dive into reason, you realize you're having to trust, have faith in your reason. We are failing to see, when we try to deconstruct our world, figure it out in our own mind, we're failing to see that we have our own blind spots. We are allowing also our suffering to control us. So the church has hurt us, so we run away from the church, and we got to figure this out ourselves. But dear friends, there's another way to look at life. I was so helped by Matt Chandler in a sermon a while ago when he asked the question, how in the world did the followers of Jesus stay so close to Jesus even after they were hurt by one of their own? You walk around for years with a group of 12 plus and one of your closest friends not only betrays your Lord and your master, but it betrays you, hurts you, hands you over. You want to be disenfranchised with the faith that you're walking in, disenfranchised with the God of the universe. You just gave your three plus years of your life just to try to follow this king and all of this stuff is happening. How in the world did they make it through that and not only become 
followers of Jesus, but devout. They gave their own lives for Jesus. How did that happen? And here's what Matt Chandler said is because they were not looking at the life of their betrayer or at their opposers. They were looking at the life of Jesus. And many of us, when we think about the church, we look at all of the hurt and all of the pain, and God wants to meet you there. But make no mistake, we must, for life and happiness and joy, look at Jesus. We've got to look at a different life, a different life. And so the essential question for every follower of Jesus is, I want to see things as Jesus sees things. I don't want to lean just on my own understanding. I want to see things as Jesus sees things. And so today we're going to ask the question, how does Jesus see the church? Not how does our pain tell us about the church. Not how does our culture frame the church. But how does Jesus, our Lord, our King, the one that many of us in this room have surrendered our lives to, how does He see the church? And so that's my prayer for us. Oh, God, help us to see the church as Jesus sees the church. I think four things that we need to see. Jesus wants us to see the church as an intertwined people, as a loved family, as a joyful privilege, and as a supplied responsibility. Jesus wants us to see the church as an intertwined people, a loved family, a joyful responsibility, and a a joyful privilege and a supplied responsibility. See the church as Jesus sees the church. And we start with an intertwined people. I read a passage from the book of Ephesians because when I was growing up in the faith, I would read the book of Ephesians and I would think this was really all about me. One of my favorite verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. And I'm just like, he saved me by grace. For grace, you have been saved through faith. And I celebrate that, but, and that's a true thing. But as you read the book of Ephesians, what you have to understand is every single you is plural. It's you guys, as you say in the north. Y'all, as you say down south. It's all plural. Every pronoun in the book of Ephesians is plural. He doesn't even consider addressing you as individuals, but how your individual life is composed as a part of a community called the church. You can just see how some of our Americanism, our individualism, just kind of forces only our individual lives into the reading of Scripture. How does Jesus view the church? He views the church not as a, simply a bunch of individuals. He views the church as an intertwined people, a we. And it's this oneness, this togetherness that is a mystery, but it's what he says the church is known for. Jesus reflects this sentiment in John 17 when he says, I do not ask for these only, but so Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Hard stop. Let's just sit there. The church is meant to be one, and our oneness is our witness. Our interconnectedness is our witness. Our togetherness is our witness to the world that God is glorious. The more we rip that apart and make it individualized, we distort God's purposes. Our oneness is a part of what it means to be a people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the letter to the Corinthian church, it begins this way, verse 2. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And then he says, together with all those who are in every place who call upon the name of the Lord our 
our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Do you see what he's doing right here? There is a necessary oneness to the people of God intertwined, but it is not simply universal, but it's also local. Do you see what he does here? He makes a distinction and he says that we are all, saints all over the globe are one. Because of our common faith in Jesus. But there is meant to be a local expression. An outpost of local connectivity that declares the love of God where we are located. There's the church in Corinth and then there's the church in universe, church universal that everybody's connected to. The summary is Jesus saves people to be an intertwined one another type of people. Not just connected generally with everybody all over the globe that professes faith in Jesus, which we are, which is what's so miraculous. But there's something unique about being a church. We are uniquely connected as Treasure in Christ Church, a local outpost of love. It's these people that we gather together, that we agree on what a view of God is. We agree on what it means to follow God. We submit to one another and uniquely to a plurality of elders and we love one another as family and we're on a common mission together uniquely to make Jesus known where we are. This is unique. That's how Jesus views the church. An intertwined, together people, not simply a bunch of individuals. But he also views the church as a family, a loved family. And I say loved because you just read through the book of Ephesians and man, it's got so much great stuff in there about Jesus' love for the church. But I just want to start in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, when it says that the church is meant to be the place where the fullness of God dwells. And a friend of mine, Jordan Thomas, said that Enjoying the fullness of Jesus is very personal, but it's never private. We gather together and we experience uniquely the fullness of Jesus, and that is very personal to you and me. We personally connect to God through our singing and through listening, and God wants us to uniquely apply the word to our own heart. It is very personal, but it's never private. It's connected. So we're not only an intertwined people, but we are a loved family because... I want you just to listen to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm just pulling out the verses that highlight Christ and the church. And I'm just going to read them. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 and 24. Christ is the head of the church. His body. How does Jesus view the church? We are the body. He's the head. He tells us where to go. He sees. Because he himself is its savior. And it says, the church submits to Christ. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Christ loved the church. Loved her so much he gave himself up for her. That he might set her apart as unique. Having cleansed her with the washing of the water with the word. In order that he might cleanse her and present himself with this beautiful gift called the church. Without spot or wrinkle, that we might be holy and without blemish. That's the view towards the last day. Look at Ephesians 5, 29 through 30. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. What are you supposed to take from this? Yes, I want you to understand something here. But I want it far more than just get something in your brain. This passage says, you are loved. You are nurtured. The same attentiveness that you have when you get up in the morning to fix your hair, to brush your teeth. And you know, pray you do that. And, you know, you, you wash yourself and, and, you know, you get ready for the, the same attentiveness you have to your own body. It's meant to be this small sense of a parallel of Jesus' unique attentiveness to his people. 
He nourishes, cherishes. He like looks at you. He cares for you. Isaiah 43, one of my favorite passages, he says he calls you precious and honored and loved. There's not one part of you he doesn't know. There's not one part of you that he isn't seeking to invade and encourage you in and supply you with. You are loved. You are loved. And if you have his love, then you have everything you need. That's a prayer I pray most every morning in Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy me early in the morning with your steadfast love that I might rejoice and be glad all my days. His love is big enough to satisfy you. Most of us distrust him because we don't believe he loves us. If we know he loves us, we will trust his love. How does Jesus view the church? He loves the church. And friends, that means we should be comforted by that and rebuked by it. Rebuked because if Jesus loves the church, we should love the church. Love them. Attentive to their needs. Caring for one another. Sacrificing for one another. Which means we've got to do the hard work of looking where God is at work because you're a person, I'm a person. People can be annoying, right? Yes, don't, don't act all spiritual out there. Every one of you gotten frustrated at somebody. People can be annoying. They can be frustrating. Which means we have to do the hard work of looking through the lenses that Jesus looks at the church and says, in all the mess... In all the difficulty, we're going to look for grace, and we're going to love the church. That's the rebuke. But the comfort is, you can love because you are loved. You aren't loved because you're not annoying, because you are, just like me. You're loved in the midst of being an annoying mess. He calls you significant, precious, honored we just need new lenses when we look at each other when we look at the church and that means that the church has to stop being some organization or some event that we attend and it is an intertwined people it is a loved family that's how Jesus views the church and he not only views the church like that but he views the church as a joyful privilege a joyful privilege Jesus died for the church. He promises to build the church. He says, I love the church. And he actually tells us that the church is the means by which he deepens our joy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, what's the next word? Joy. Complete it. That word complete means to kind of make perfect, deepen it, fill it up. So in some senses he's saying it's not full. It's not complete. Without what? Without the church, without this encouragement being shared, without this common like-mindedness that we are all desperate for Jesus. We have his same mind. A mind that does what? Verse 3. Don't do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This is the, the mantra of the church. We are loved by Christ, and we consider one another more significant than ourselves. And by so doing, our joy is fuller, wider, broader. It's deepened. It's made more complete. The church is essential for completing your joy. I was reading an article in Time magazine on happiness. I'm always intrigued when the world tells us how to be happy. So, I read the article. 
And I'm reading unhappiness, and for our purposes, kind of what they're going after is what the Bible calls joy. So don't make this massive distinction here. Do you know that there are happiness experts? There are. 18 happiness experts were consulted for this article. I don't know how you get on that list of I'm an expert in happiness. It might be a burden really heavy to carry, you know. I am the happiest person on the planet. I'm one of the 18. I don't know how this works. But happiness experts exist, and they give this study on happiness, and they write this article on the, air quotes, secrets to happiness. They're not secrets. But they're secrets to happiness that take years, apparently, of study Yes, this is dripping with sarcasm. Okay, I get that. Here's the secret. They, of course, mention the need for a lot of physical things. Good sleep, exercise, eating well. Those things are crucial. We get that. But internally, they give us the secret sauce. Okay? I'm just going to listen to you. You need to be guided by meaning and purpose. You need to be connected with others. You need to be around loving people. Okay. Like you need a hug or a shoulder to cry on or a person to share your joys with. That's what they mean by be around loving people. You need to choose to be thankful. Be aware of your emotions. Don't just stuff your emotions. Thank you, book of Psalms. Be a singing or a musical people. Meditate and reflect in stillness. Practice compassion and serve others. The happiness experts literally seem to be stunned. They seem to be stunned. And here's a quote from the author. Literally it said, we've heard it said. They didn't say where. We've heard it said, it is better to give than to receive. Is it true? The answer is a resounding yes. And then they go on to state a physiological study that parts of the brain are stimulated when you care for others that are the same places where food and sex stimulate parts of the brain. Okay. I just stopped reading and smiled. The God, the creator of the universe, has told us happiness lies not in controlling your own life, but in surrendering your life into the control of the one who created happiness into his fatherly care. And the happiness experts, after all the study, they just ended up quoting God's words. It's more blessed to give than receive. And I don't know if you were able to spiritually process that whole list I went through. Every one of those, if made Godward, are in Scripture. But then I began to think about the church. And then you begin to see every box checked for happiness that was listed in this study in the church. Here's what I mean. A community where people welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed you. People to serve. A context where you're able to use your gifts and care for other people and consider them better than yourself. A weekly gathering of common purpose where we say, Jesus, you're better than life. And I want to center my life on him. A place where we can sing And enjoy truth through music. A people where we can meditate with and be encouraged with. A place where we can be thankful and to out loud our thankfulness. A people with whom we can acknowledge our difficulty and not stuff them. A place to share and not escape hard seasons. Or emotions, a people to pray for you and hug you and cry with you. Loving people who, though imperfectly, 
They earnestly are characterized by love. Do you see what God has done? The creator of happiness has hardwired it as a necessity for the people of God to be the people of God in the church. And it checks off every box that I don't know how many years of study it took. It just shows that our God cares about our joy. He cares. And he is telling us, I view the church as a joyful privilege. I view the church as the place that actually completes and deepens your joy. Yes, there's drama. But there's drama on this earth because we're all on it. And the drama is meant to give us a longing for the day when we'll be before Jesus and our joy will be really complete and full. But oh, may we not run from, but delight in the fact that we are a part of the church. Jesus sees the church as a joyful privilege and oh, may we see it as such. But he also sees it as a supplied responsibility. There's responsibility in being the church. We've got to do something. It is not just receiving God's love. It is not just enjoying one another. It's not just acknowledging that we can't be individuals on an island. We've got to be interconnected. But there's a responsibility. But I use supplied responsibility so that you would know everything that is required of the church is supplied by Christ. You're never alone. Always given everything you need. So this doesn't need to overwhelm you. This is supplied by the Savior who loves you. And I just want to give you a brief explanation, definition. I get it from my friend Nathan Knight in Washington, D.C. I've tweaked it and added and kind of moved it around, but the, the general bones are from him. The responsibility of the church is this. The church is a regular gathering of Christ-treasuring people who agree together to be and make disciples who do three things. Proclaim the gospel, protect the gospel, and portray the gospel. That's what we're to do. This definition says who we are and what we do. Just to help you. The word church, if you dissect it, the word is ekklesia. Yeah, and I intentionally hard-cade it, okay? Ek, out of, klesia, called ones. The ones called out of the world to be a people, called out into Christ's people. That's what it means. But in New Testament times, the word church just simply meant gathering. You couldn't be a church if you didn't gather. So the definition of church are called out ones who gather. They're the gathering called out ones. That's why we do what we do here. You can't be the church and just be an individual. It's like defying the definition. The church is a gathered people called out to be a people who love Christ. That's why Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. And all of us could raise our hands that it has at some point wanted to be our habit, right? You get that. I wake up and I'm tired and I don't want to go. It feels optional. It feels inconvenient. Or I've been hurt. I don't want to do this thing. I get all of that. I've experienced all of that. And this is so beautifully acknowledging that we're called the gathered people. We've got to gather because we need one another to stir up love within us. It doesn't just come. We need one another. I need your example. I need your encouraging words. It even says in Hebrews chapter 3, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that you are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you follow that logic? If you do not make it your ambition to encourage people, it not only doesn't encourage someone else, but it actually works to harden your heart and make you more and more okay with sin. The church is meant to be a gathered people because as we gather, we stir up one another to love and we worship above all. We declare that Jesus is our King. What is the church? The church is a people who openly say, 
I'm in Christ and I love him. This definition, the church is a regular gathering of Christ treasuring people. The church is only people who love Jesus. It's only believers. That's what the church is. Christ treasuring people. There's a book called The Loveliest Place by Dustin Binge. And it says the church is more about who we are than what we do. There are tons of churches that tell you all that you need to do for God. But you will burn out, you will die on the vine if you first think of the church as what you do. The church is who you are. An intertwined, one loved family. That when you're together with them, joy increases. Who are you? You've been loved by Jesus. That's who you are. You're a child. Christ treasuring people. That's why I read the passage I read earlier when it says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. One brother said the church, the people, is the place where heaven touches earth. I get it. It feels hard to see that. I get that. Because sometimes we can be so messy. But this is the best foretaste we get is when I hear testimonies of how God helped you in your struggle. When I hear of people coming to faith in Jesus and their lives being turned upside down. When I hear community groups coming alongside those who are hurting and supplying meals and praying with and weeping with and giving patience to those who are suffering but always saying, I'm there for you. Jesus loves you and encourages one another. When I hear text threads that are going out through all over this church of just how people are encouraging each other day by day. When I see generations being raised up to love Jesus. When I see our resources being pulled together in order that the gospel would go out to this city and all over the globe. When we get to be a part of that, we are seeing a taste of heaven on earth. And you remove yourself from that. If the church is optional, some type of event or club, it's a people that have been so infected by Jesus that we will experience him when we're together. Who is the church? It's the regular gathering of Christ treasuring people who agree together. We agree together. We have to agree on who God is. That's what a church does. Because, I don't know if you know this, the book of Galatians, it does not address the elders. It addresses the church to smell out where doctrine is healthy and where doctrine is stinky. It's our responsibility as the church to say, that's stinky teaching right there. The elders are meant to equip you, but it's the church's job. To say, that's healthy doctrine. That's why we have an affirmation of faith. It's also the church's job to say, this is healthy living. And that's why we have a church covenant. It's the church's job to say, this is how we agree together to be governed. That's why we have a constitution. All guided by the scriptures. But we have to agree to something. So that we can say what's in and what's out. That's actually the responsibility of the church. That's what we've been called to do. So we agreed together to be on Jesus' mission to be and make disciples. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples. That's what our job is. Teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands. And I think you could summarize it in these three things. Proclaim the gospel. Protect the gospel. And portray the gospel. You can have a sermon on each one, so I'm not going to belabor it, but I do want to tell you what it is. Proclaim the gospel. This is what the church is known for. Speaking the good news of Jesus to one another and to lost people. Proclaim the gospel. Protect the gospel. What's it mean to protect the gospel? This is why we talk about healthy church membership and why the Bible describes church discipline. I want you to look at Matthew 16 real quickly. The Bible says this, And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, But who do you say that I am? 
Stay with me. We're almost there. So Jesus is saying, a bunch of people are talking about me, and this is who they say I am. But who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. That's what bar means, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I believe that means on Peter as the one who confessed this truth, I will build my church. So that means on anyone who confesses this truth like Peter confesses this truth, this is what I'm laying the church on. This is the foundation that the church is going to be built on. Anyone who says you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that's my church. That's the foundation I'm building the church on. And so he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will be distortions, there will be attackers, there will be all kinds of painful things that happen. But I promise you this, Jesus says, because I'm the builder, it will be built. Nothing's going to stop it. You want a purpose to live your life on? There's one. And so he says, I will give you the keys, church. Of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we have talked about this before, but just to reiterate it again, the church has these keys. The responsibility to declare, as best we can tell, these are the people of God. And when someone starts living their life in a horrible, unrepentant, doesn't matter how many times you go to them in a Matthew 18 kind of way, they just will not turn from sin. It's the church's responsibility to say, we can no longer verify your faith. It's no longer certain to us because you keep running from the very things that Jesus said run towards. It's the church's job to declare this is the church and it's the church's job to say, please turn from sin. Please turn from sin. We love you too much. Don't run your life over a cliff. And if they keep doing it, it says remove them from the church. It's the church's job. Meaningful membership, church discipline, that's how we protect the gospel. And it's the church's job to portray the gospel. Do you ever wonder why he organized baptism as kind of this first act of obedience out of professing faith? Because it's a portrayal of the good news. It's an out loud testimony. I've died to sin. I'm alive in Christ. And you're sharing it with the world. And then the Lord's Supper is meant to be the week in, week out communication of what your baptism said. The Lord's Supper is meant to be what I said there at my baptism. That I've died to sin. And he has been raised to new life and I'm raised with him and I love him and I want to live my life for him. Lord's Supper every time. Lord's Supper is confession of sin and confession of faith. How does the church portray the gospel? Through the baptism in Lord's Supper. But how do we finally portray the gospel? Through love. Doesn't he say they'll know you are Christians by how you love one another? How you love one another. And so we have to fight to be characterized, not only by love for one another, but love for the same world that our Savior said he died for. We must be a people because we are so loved, we generously, sacrificially love those who don't know Christ. Right after I finish praying and we sing a song, we're going to commission, send out, pray for Dear friends, workers that we desire to partner with in prayer and support, but we do that because we are all sent ones. We are all sent to love where we are. And God has uniquely and preciously called this family to go to a specifically dark place. And we want to be the church that says this is what we do. We portray the gospel through baptism and the Lord's Supper, but through our love for one another and through our love for the world. Dear friends, 
my whole prayer. And, oh, God, I pray you make it happen. My prayer is that you see the church as Jesus sees the church. Don't let culture tell you what it should look like. Don't let your heart and all of its hurt tell you what it should look like. But let Jesus tell you what it should look like. An intertwined people. A loved family. This people is a joyful privilege. And it's a supplied responsibility. You'll always have what you need to do what he's called you to do. Church, I'm happy to be in this with you. Let's just encourage one another to see the church as Jesus sees the church. Let's pray. Father, I ask. I know this is a lot of material. But Father, I ask that the way I started this sermon is the way we end it. You are here. The reason you love the church is because your church is your body. You dwell here. Father, we just want to confess out loud that when we sing, you are the primary worship leader. When we open up your word, it's you who are speaking through an imperfect vessel in me, but through a perfect word, the Bible. Father, when we gather together, you promise you are uniquely there. We just want to confess, when we are on your mission, you are uniquely with us. Father, I ask that this would not just be mental exercise, but Father, we would declare the most beautiful thing in all the world. You are here, and you love us, and you are for us. And if you are for us, who can be against us? Please, oh God, help us to live lives of love.